RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. My guest today is Lucinda Chambers, the British fashion director, designer and stylist who worked at Vogue magazine for 36 years. And while there, she also consulted for fashion houses Prada, Jill Sander, Marnie and many of the high street brands, along with other independent magazines. But from the off, had it not been for a panic moment when Lucinda threw a lighted cigarette over an office petition landing on a colleague's desk, that she might have gone down a completely different career path. But this bizarre event led her to become secretary to Vogue's editor, Beatrix Miller, and after a few years, moving on as assistant to fashion editor Grace Coddington. Then, in 1985, Lucinda joined editor Sally Brampton at Elle magazine as her fashion director. Two years later, she returned to Vogue to work with editor Liz Tilbury's as her fashion editor. Then, in 1992, when Alexandra Schulman joined as Vogue's editor, she gave Lucinda the post of fashion director. It was to become a highly creative period for Lucinda, using her talents steeped in colour, composition and imaginative storytelling with the images she created, collaborating with the world's best photographers and with models capable of transforming themselves into the characters that Lucinda had in her head. But in 2017, it all ended abruptly, with the arrival of Vogue's new editor, Edward Enninfor, more of which later. In this open, candid and at times with hilarious moments in Lucinda's eventful life. We opened our conversation on her new venture with designer and close friend Molly Malloy. We started Colville at the same time that I started Collagerie, but that's not unusual for me because I've always had two, I've always had a a main gig and a side hustle. Colville we started because we had so enjoyed working at Marnie together. I had uh, asked Molly to come to Milan to work with me at Marnie many years ago, probably now about 16, 17 years ago. And we just enjoy each other's company and design ethos and yeah just working together was so such a joy so when we all left Marnie when it was sold we realized it was going to be a very different sort of creature an animal under its new ownership so there was a bit of a mass exodus and then a few months later Molly said why don't we start something together and I'm like I'm in but right from the beginning I think Colville's ethos and design aesthetic I mean I think it was very much and I don't use this word lightly we wanted to build a company not even as a strategic plan because we're not very good at that that was very inclusive and felt more like a community a collection of these people that we had gathered together along the way and along our journey at Marnie and various places before so it's much much more of a sort of collective I would say but it is is Molly and me, and we have a wonderful designer called Danny, and we work with a lot of artisans around the world, a lot of women's group, and right from the beginning, we questioned everything about sustainability, about why we're using plastic coat hangers, let's not do that, let's change things. So everything, it's on a shoestring. We've worked on a budget of nothing, but every decision we make is very conscious, and its I think it was a reaction where we worked at Marnie, where everything was produced. We were doing eight collections every season. My goodness me, that's... So that was 12. I mean, there was nothing we didn't do. And we were starting to go into homeware. So I think Colville felt like, you know, we wanted to build this little jewel company where we give a shout out to everybody that we work with. We're very inclusive. Everybody gets their spotlight in the sun. You know, we share who all our designers are, that if other people want to work with them, that's wonderful too. It feels like a very different way of working. So in, t- um, in yeah. terms of your designers and the and the work, and I've looked at this, the site quite a lot, as I'm a graphic designer, that you use a lot of graphics, actually, yes. for, you know, lettering and so forth, oh. and uh, uh, incredible use of colour. Um, and also you have other 
products, bags, and so forth, all, all very colorful and beautiful and have a, some of them have a very sort of ethnic-y feel because I, I think you hook up with various people, um, from, you know, different, different parts of the world. Do you design yourself a lot or do you supervise the designers that you referred to just now? How, do, how does it work? Well, it's really interesting. And I think it happened. I would not call myself a designer and yet I can do something on the back of an envelope and I can drape and I can, you know, imagine how things were. And I think I was very fortunate very, very early on in my career that I started consultancy with Prada when nobody had heard of it. Mm. And I remember going around Vogue saying, has anybody heard of Prada? And somebody said, oh, I think they do luggage. And I thought luggage and, and I'd done some consultancy before for mainly high street brands actually in the UK. But with Prada, there was just me and Mutia and a knitwear designer. And we were really expected to present collections. And so I really having had no skill in that department at all, I learned how to put a collection together and how to, I wouldn't call it design, but but I guess it is in a funny way. Well, I think considering you spent, and we'll go on to it, but you spent your, you know, huge part of your life totally entrenched with design around you, colour, everything. It's got it. You know, there's no way yeah, it didn't, got to rub off. It didn't fil- filter be, through. Yeah, it would ter- it would be terrible blockage if if something hadn't uh, yeah. passed the old skin cell test. Yeah, yeah. But yes, I think I think we work in a very demographic way where we have there's Molly and me and Danny, and Danny is a true designer, and so is Molly actually mm-hmm. in the fact that he's very conceptual about his design. It's often quite intellectual, so I think mm. Molly and I bring another part in it that we you know, we want to design and make clothes that we would wear ourselves. And we're, you know, we're quite different ages. But Danny, I think, brings a very intellectual, conceptual quality to mm-hmm. the table. And and I think if we're honest, Mike, we love the differences. Of we course. love the back and forth and the questioning and the but at the end of the day, and I think we've learned this quite late, is that we don't want to design products or anything actually. That women and indeed men actually, we have quite a large group of men who wear our clothes, don't want to put on their backs, want to ever design anything for the sake of it or yeah. design too much. We'll come back um to what you're what you're doing now again at the very end. But let's go back to your earliest memories, which I guess because you were a child of the late fifties, your memories would be more into the sixties. So what are your early earliest memories of, of home life? Well, at home, we were always on the move. So there was absolute, we, 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 all, we moved, I think, about 18 times before I was 17. So my mother was incredible at finding somewhere that was pretty derelict, never off page 58 of the A to Z. So it was in a very close area. It was walking distance between Harrods and the Brompton Oratory. And I have to say, not that we shopped at Harrods, but we liked to look. Of course. We would go and look and try things on. And my mother always had a tape measure in her pocket, which I have with me to this day. And we would go and try things on, but we were always on the move. And the minute she would wallpaper, take down walls, do everything, a lot herself. She was very brilliant with her hands. She would never say that she was a creative, but I think she was. She could see spaces in an extraordinary way. Like if I turned the stairs back to front, if I knocked down that wall, if I opened up the kitchen, if I did this, always without any money, I have to say. And then the minute it was done, and my brother and I were thrilled that we possibly got our own bedroom, we were on the move again. And it was really how she made money, I guess. I think maybe it would be interesting to explain why this burden was on your mother, because I I do know that you know, your, I, I read a piece, um, that you'd written or in an interview where you, you just referred to your father as a workaholic and really home and then left the family. Is that the reason yeah. that your mother had to take on this enormous burden of, uh, because she was the breadwinner? No, my father was the breadwinner, but yeah. she definitely made a huge contribution. And for good or for bad, they wanted to send my brother and I to private schools. Yeah. And I think that was their overarching reason to make this work. My father was in advertising. He was very handsome. He's what did he alive. do in advertising? He was. He, he worked for JWT, J. Walter Thompson. Yeah. He worked a lot. He was also always changing jobs, actually. He was very restless. He wanted his own company. And I remember growing up that my mother always thought if he made his own company, if he started his own company, he would be happy. He was a sports fanatic. So in the summer, he played tennis from eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night. And in the winter, he played squash. So we never saw him. We never went on holiday 
with him. He's still alive. He's 99 and I see him every week and he's around the corner. Oh, right. But it was a very distant relationship. He wasn't particularly interested in us. He loved his work. He loved pitching. And I think that's in my latter years now, I realize that that's what I inherited from him. I love pitching, pitching ideas, yeah. thinking of ideas. And he was very good at that, but it was very feast or famine. I mean, he'd come home and say, I've won this account. We'd have a car. But then the next minute he'd say, I've lost this account and we wouldn't have a car. It didn't discombobulate us in the sense that we felt insecure about it, but we were never, you know, I, I got my first job when I was 12 because I wanted a TV. And my mother said, well, we're not going to get a TV. You have to go and get a job. And so I got a job at a news agent. So I think I was 13. And I worked there for, I think, four years. But I knew my parents weren't going to buy a TV, you know. So I think that work ethic of, you know, if you want something, you've got to do it yourself. And I think my mother was very like that and my father was very like that. But it was, you know, we did lurch from car, no car, moving house, moving house. But what was amazing, Mike, is that my mother did up these properties in completely different ways. So if we had a flat, which was in Cheney Walk, which was stupendous, hmm. overlooked the river. Yes. She did it, you know, in gold and coral and greens and quite rococo. But then the next minute we were moving into a very modern flat in Ovington Square and she did it, you know, she painted the ceiling black and did white beams to lower the ceiling. And so it was always very different. There's never Is one. Is that because she, she was naturally sort of creative? Because I, I know later, and we'll talk about it, that when you, when we go on to going to college and, and the fact that she also decided she wanted to go, but put that to one side. Of the way. Was she just naturally creative? I mean, I before she- doing up these houses to to get to sell them on, to make enough money to run, you know, the family and pay for your school fees and so forth, which is you know incredibly commendable. Where did this this ability to look at interiors in a particular way you know the oh this i'm we're near the water so we'll give it this effect or whatever whatever when did that start do you remember i don't think it was i don't and i don't think it was creative i think her absolute kind of mantra was try things out and you know she would say that to me as a child and to my brother try things out try boyfriends out try drugs out try try everything you've got to try (laughs) everything just try everything right and i think that's you know she left home very early she always said she felt like a cuckoo in the nest she was very very bright she got married she went to egypt i think she was in the soe and i think she was not the wrens the wafts and and her grandmother was i adored her mother it wasn't a very good relationship and i got on much better with her than my mother did. My mother always felt the cuckoo in the nest and she had a sister who died and my mother left home very early and went to Egypt and got married and had my sister. And then my mother left her first husband. So my mother, I think, was pretty fearless. I think that's the thing about the trying things out. She knew that if she was going to succeed in anything, whether it was bringing up children or moving houses, she wasn't going to rely on anybody except herself. And right. I think that's something that I've definitely inherited. The safety net ended with you. The buck God. stopped there. And you've got an, an older brother and a step sister, I believe, who's half sister, who's older than you as well. So how did you fit in with with the the other two? Well, my brother and I were very close. He sadly died um, quite a while ago. We grew up very, very much hugger-mugger. My sister, less so, because Mm. she also left home and had quite a fabulous rackety life. She wrote a book when she was very young called Alternative London, and then she wrote another one called Survival Guide. And she was very much a kid of the 60s, very glamorous. Right. I remember looking at all her clothes and she loved us when we were very little and then she really made her own way and went to move to Wales and so I really grew up with my brother who was you know we were 18 months apart he was an older brother and he was a wonderful older brother and I felt very protected by him we were always sort of in it together as it were Um, but my mother and I and my brother always travelled together you know she joined something when we were very young called the weekend ski club and for £17.50 you could get on a train and go to Edinburgh and ski and you could go to Biddeford in Devon and walk Water ski. So weirdly, <laughs> I can water ski quite well with that for somebody who's very unsporty. But she made things work. You know, she made holidays work on a, on a two and six month. She was resourceful. Uh, yeah, I think that comes across very clearly. What, what about your school years? Tell me about that. How was, how was sort of junior school and then moving on? And um, how, how, do, how do you fit in academically in, in oh, that world? Very badly. Very I bad. mean, I think my mother begged, begged schools to take me in. I remember her begging Kensington Prep and said, we'll work every day during the holidays to get her maths up. To school. I remember my mother's always on her knees, either at the Bonton Oratory, praying that a school <laughs> would take me in, or 
on her knees to a headmistress or headmaster begging that we would be let into that school. A Brompton Oratory Catholic? Is, yes, yes, yes. I thought so, yeah. Yes. My mother was very Catholic. Right. And she always was shouting at God saying, no wonder you don't have any friends if you treat them this way. So <laughs> Catholicism was quite a big part of our lives. And, and So you're, you're a Catholic as well? Of course. Yes, so yes. yeah, okay. Well, I yes. was I was brought up a Catholic, Catholic Irish family, so I'm very aware. Yes, of Yes, the... I know nothing about Catholicism, um, no. but my husband's a convert, so he does. So we did go. I went to Waldingham. Then again, I I failed spectacularly because I kept on running away, and my mother would say. You know, darling, why do you run away on a Friday when you're coming home at the weekend? Run away on a bloody Monday when you've got the whole week stretching ahead of you. <laughs> um, and 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 I was not academic hmm. uh, at all and mucked around at school. Had a great group of friends who I still have to this day. We all got expelled for various reasons, shoplifting, getting pregnant, in my case, failing spectacularly at every O-level. So there was no no particular subject then that you sort of latched onto? You just no, were, were none. drifting along and none, just hating none. the whole experience? None. I loved right. it. I mean, by that time, I'd worked every holidays and saved up to buy my TV, which took me four years. So I, I wanted to sort of be out of the world. But but when I failed all my O's, my parents were like, we're not going to keep on spending the money. And I suddenly felt very ashamed. It, and I suddenly thought, this actually is, this is embarrassing because people will now think I'm stupid. And I knew I wasn't stupid, but I knew I just enjoyed messing around too much. Mm. And they said, we're going to send you to Queensgate, which for me, that was where thick people, thick sort mm. of privileged people mm. went. And I got a shock. You know, I was shocked and I thought, okay, now I'm going to take this seriously. So I've got a lot of A-levels and what was brilliant about Queensgate is it wasn't for people who are that academic, but it switched a light bulb on for me. The teachers there were amazing and I discovered art and history of art and English and poetry and things that I really, I'd always written poetry actually. English, I had been really good at at school actually, I have to say. I Mm. really enjoyed essay writing and and writing poems, but I think all 14-year-old girls did. But but I won some competitions and stuff like that. But it was at A-level, I really uh, decided to knuckle down and I realised that the writing was a bit on the wall really. You Obviously, clearly then things were beginning to sort of present themselves uh, that you found interesting and and i think then the idea then when you were ready to leave school at 18 you you were destined to go to secretarial school weren't you yes yes but that was too expensive it was too expensive so you decided you you should go to art school instead and your mother said well why don't we both go to art school (laughs) well it wasn't so much that I wanted to go to art school because I, I had won a competition, a Christmas card competition. Right. So that's what made me do my A level in art because I didn't think I was that talented in art and I wasn't and I'm not. But my father left and, and then suddenly the money really was out. Ah. And uh, my mother said, let's both go to art college because we could get a grant and she wanted to learn a skill that could translate into a job. And she thought I could get a grant just because, you know. So we both sat at the kitchen table and we both did our portfolios. And I have to say, I think pasta and knitting wool was involved. My mother, <laughs> they were ghastly. But but what my mother had always done growing up, we'd always made things. So we made yeah. all my clothes. She made all a lot of her clothes, but she definitely made all of mine. And we used to make a lot of stuff. So we'd make theatres out of cornflake packets and a lot of dolls' clothes and a lot of, there was a lot of craft corner, I'd yeah. say, on the kitchen table. Yeah. So we were good with our hands, you know, yeah. and I could make a pair of trousers and, you know, I could knit and do stuff like that. So my mother said, let's, let's go to art college because we'll get a grant and we won't have to pay it back. So we did. And she did brilliantly, and I did. And she went to the London College of Printing at the age fifty-eight. She did. And you went to Hornsey. And I went to Hornsey. And didn't and didn't get on um, there because because I realised when I got to Hornsey that actually everybody had a talent and I didn't, and I felt very guilty about that that I was taking up a space. But what was amazing is I happened to happen upon the Perspects room because it was foundation course and we could try everything out. And so that was great for me. What I was lousy at was sort of sketching and shading and doing anything with a pencil. But I saw all these colours in the Perspects room, these sheets of, of plastic. Yeah. 
And I thought I could do something with this. And you get that lovely refraction on the edges, don't you? Which is so amazing when you first come into it. Was like a, you know, kaleidoscope. It was like being on drugs. Yeah. And I thought I could start like making stuff to sell. I could start making, Mm -hmm. I think they showed us how to work a jig machine and a black and decker. And I started making, I had said to my tutor, I am really quite interested in fashion. And he said, fashion's fucked it should be just blown sky high nobody nobody does fashion in this college you know you know know, so that was really squashed on so that was fine i thought okay about turn but i started making these um earrings and necklaces and i started selling them at camden market when i got quite a few together and i didn't tell my tutor that's what i was doing I i think i said i was making a mobile of interlocking shapes representing marks on the world of the something or other so very good as i churned them out he <laughs> yes. was thinking i was doing something much more floating above the clouds but actually i was just flogging them right um and then one of them ended up in a free magazine that was given out on the tubes called miss london oh i remember that do you remember? I do. I couldn't believe it, Mike. We were not a magazine reader in our house. I mean, you know, we'd not afford to buy a magazine. I couldn't. It was like an electric bolt going on. Yeah. It was a, a light bulb bolt yeah. because I realized that I had held those. Nothing seemed as glamorous to me. Hmm. It seemed beyond my comprehension that something I'd made in, by that time I bought a Black & Decker and was doing it in my bedroom at home, that something I'd held and made was on this, on a model. I mean, I just thought it was extraordinary. And then I realized that there was this process in between, that somehow a pair of earrings had gone from the market store into a location, into a studio, and somebody had put them on a model. And I just thought then I've got to know what this process is because it seems so otherworldly. And yet I'd made them. So there had to be a, a path, a journey. You left with this you know, vision well, in your head. Well, so what I happened? T- I tried to get into another college. I tried yeah. to get into Ravensbourne to do fashion. And, uh-huh. and I remember going there and they didn't open my portfolio. And the woman said to me, where do you, the first question, the only question she asked me is, where do you live? And I said, oh, world's end. And she said, well, that's Chelsea, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I, gu- I guess it is. And she said, you're a real Chelsea girl. I said, I don't know. And and I was so angry. And I remember coming back home. She didn't even look at my work, not that it was much good. But I remember going back home and I remember my mother and I, we did star jumps going, fuck it, you know, Mm. fuck it, fuck her. Mm. You know, let's move on. And my mother always made me feel that. She was just like, you know what? This is going to serve you in good stead. And I didn't apply anywhere else. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was knocked back. I just thought, that's okay, that's not for me then. Your mother sounds like the most fantastic support. Yeah. Without being, you know, sort of drippy about it, but no, not being very positive about what you could or should or couldn't do. I mean, that's, that is, that's wonderful, I think. I think, I think what was wonderful about her, and I really tried to do this with my own children. I don't know whether I've succeeded or not, but A, nothing shocked her. Nothing. Hmm. Hmm. You could do anything. And B, there were no expectations. So she always said to me, I don't care what you do. If you want to make omelets, hmm. make omelets, but make the best bloody omelets that you can. Yeah. So my brother was very academic and he went to Oxford and my sister was very clever. And I was like the young one who was a bit of a joke and who made everybody laugh a bit and sort of no expectations, Mike. It's a story I've heard actually quite a lot and it was particularly in our world the creative world it, it it's quite extraordinary the connections that over the period that i've been doing this and speaking to people you know for example there are many dyslexic uh, yes. designers creatives yeah really Indeed. incredible and also and ones that uh, one that i interviewed fairly recently a very well-known architect who went to eton and <laughs> failed at everything <laughs> absolutely got yeah. one o level but anyway, <laughs> it's, it, it, there has to be, um, you know, there has to be, you know, reason for that. Yes. They're, they're. And a lot of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. And yeah. Yeah. Let's go on now. You, you, you leave college and you have to find jobs and you do quite a few, don't you? You sort I of do, do yes, sales this and a top shop and yeah. making theatre costumes at the Edinburgh Festival. And yeah. what's a bit about working with bin men? What is it? What, what, oh, what is it? Uh, only be Mike, you've done so much deep background. I love it. Um, I'm, I feel rather embarrassed that you have because I'm, I'm sure you've interviewed sort of amazing people. And anyway, well, w- when I had the light bulb moment of, of I've got to learn this process, I thought, okay, that's going to sharpen me up that every job I take, the bin men was a massive detour, but every job I take has to 
have a fashion element so that somehow I can join the dots. You know, somehow everything's for a reason, you know? So I thought whether it's working on the floor at Topshop or whether it's making costumes badly, it's got to serve a purpose that's mm. edging towards this magazine world, which is something yeah. so beyond my ken. Yeah. But, but I think the bin men, I was taking a temporary job as well. I mean, I had about six jobs on the go. And so I was always trying to make money, but then the money like the theatre costumes and mm. that didn't pay. So it would be a juggling, juggling act between earning my own money and, you know, trying to keep a toe into some, something to do with fashion. So I remember that it was when I was working for the bin men that I did ring up Vogue. And I think I was working for Chop Shop as well. I wrote, well, I had to write out all their accident reports. But what were you doing with the bin men? I mean, typing out, typing out their accident reports. Oh, okay. Or, or I, actually <laughs> drawing. No, I couldn't type at that point. I was drawing out their accident and they were terrific liars, you know, because you're never going to win a battle against a, a bin truck, no. you know? So they would come into the office. It was in Paddington and they'd go, well, you know, this bloke bumped into me and, you know, it wasn't my fault, Galvin, you know, but then, yeah. and I would have to draw it out on a piece of paper. But I do remember going in saying, I've rung Vogue up. And they were all kind of like, well, did you get the job? You know. <laughs> anyway. And this was um, at a time when you were also making your own clothes and, and as I understand it, preferring furnishing fabrics. Yeah, I did. Um, make, and yeah. you would go to a, a hairdresser's salon and allow them to experiment on your hair. Yes. That was amazing, actually, because, because I did make all my own clothes. And then the hairdressing salon said, we want to photograph you. Not that I was any good looks. Probably the back of my head was the best view, but... We're going to, but it was all multicolored. And they said, we're going to send you to this photographer because we want some pictures for the salon. And I was beside myself. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I went to a squat, which was in a hospital in Charing Cross. And the window on the second floor was flung open. And this chap said, I'm going to throw you down the keys. Just come up to the second floor ward. And it was Mario Testino. Mario Testino. Yes. And yeah. that was, that was going to be the beginning of a very long friendship. Yeah. A very long friendship and career. And he opened the door and he said, the first thing he said was, I knew I was going to see you again. He said, I saw you from the top of a bus this morning. And he said, I wonder who that freak is walking <laughs> down Regent Street. She's a freak. And uh, he said, but I knew I'd see you again. We started doing pictures together. And that really became, I suppose, your entree into the, the world that you really ultimately actually embraced. But tell me about the interview at Vogue and how yes, that came Mario about. actually wasn't my entree because I don't think he had picked up a... Right. I think the hairdressing salon was his first paid job. Right. And he, he was living in a squash. And yeah. anyway, what happened was I thought, I'll just ring up Vogue and just see if anybody answers. I don't know what gave me the balls, but anyway, and I was very, very lucky because the woman, Angela Simon, was the head of HR, as it's called now. She was mm -hmm. head of personnel and her assistant was ill and she picked up the phone and I said, I, I think I was working at Topshop at the time and, and the bin men, a bit, bit of a juggle. And she said, well, you can come at, you know, you can come in your lunch break and I'll give you a quick interview. She interviewed me and, and she said, can you type? And I said, no. And she said, can you do this? I said, no. She said, you've never really sat behind a desk before, have you? And I went, no, not really. She said, but I like you, but you've got to type. You've got to learn to type. She mm. said, go and learn to type and then come back when you've learned to type. So my mother and I got a book out of the library and we sat at the kitchen table and my mother would go faster, faster. <laughs> and I remember about four weeks later, I rang Angela back and I said, I can, I can do a business letter. Not super fast, but I can do it. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay. And I went back in and then she said, I'm going to find you a job. And about two weeks later, she hung up and she said, I found you a job. It is the worst job in the building, but it'll get you in. And it was secretary to the petty cash woman. And so I started. She was pretty foul, actually, I have to say. She used to throw bios at me saying, you're not in the bloody fashion room yet. Because I would make all my clothes. I thought that's what you have to do. Yeah. I was so disappointed when I got there because nobody looked extraordinary. They all looked kind of like normal, hardworking women. And I was sort of sat there in a tutu with leaves stuck in, which would fall apart and disintegrate at 5.30 in the afternoon. And Miss Davis would, you know, say, you know, you look horrendous. And... um <laughs> But I used to type out all the petty cash forms, which was just about my pay grade, I think. And that ultimately, obviously, uh, they enjoyed having you there because you, you, you then ended up working for the editor as a sort of an assistant, um, Beatrix 
Miller. By pure fluke, Mike. By pure fluke, okay. Yeah, total fluke, because really nobody noticed I was sitting there in a tutu typing up petty cash forms badly. Miss Davis never went out for lunch except on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And in those days, partitions at Vogue, they were all partitioned with stub partitions, but open at the top. Anyway, she happened to go out for lunch on a Friday, and I lit up a cigarette, and somebody walked in, and I threw it, the cigarette, over the partition. About two minutes later, this person came into the office, into my bit of the cubicle, holding this lit cigarette. And she said, is this yours? And I said, I'm so sorry. I'll just leave right now because I'm sure it's a sackable offence. I'm so sorry. She said, I think it's bloody hilarious. (laughs) She said, I smoke too, but this is hilarious. It flew and landed on my desk. She said, have you met the editor yet? And I went, no, I've met nobody except Miss Davis. And she said, we're looking for a secretary for the editor. Do you want to come and have an interview? I was like, oh my God, of course, of course I do. I was absolutely like bubbles. I mean, you know, multicolour hair, tutu, ribbons up my legs. I looked like a Morris dancer cross between, you know, I don't know what. And I went in, I had this interview with Beatrix Miller and... And did she have her own office? So you're going to the inner sanctum. Oh my God. And she was very shy. So you never saw her sort of patrolling the corridor. And I didn't even know what she looked like. I didn't know who anybody looked like because I just did the petty cash slips and then walked, you know, went home. So I didn't know who was who or anything. The fashion room was across the corridor and I never, you know, got up the courage to look in there. So I hadn't met anybody. But anyway, Miss Miller gave me the job. And I remember about a month in or a few months in, actually, I'd devised my own filing system, which was absolutely appalling. I filed everything under their people's first names because, you know, (laughs) T for Tony Snowden, because I thought, well, that's how I'll remember it, which I didn't. And I remember Miss Miller calling me in saying, darling, you've got so much furniture in your head, but you're so bloody disorganized and I'm going to get you organized, you know, and she did. Wow. And it was incredible. And they sort of adopted me. I think I was like a kind of odd pet because I was forever sending bikes to pick up the letter that I, that Miss Miller had written to Lord Snowden to get it back so I could photocopy it because I couldn't know, remember where the hell I'd filed it. Um, and they were very, very indulgent, I have to say. And you worked for her for three years. And then, years. and then yeah. you became uh, assistant to Grace Coddington, yes, who was the then fashion, fashion director. director. Yep. She was the one with the wildly red hair, yes. if I remember. Well, very, wonderful yeah, looking, yeah. wonderful looking. Yeah. And she had always said to Miss Miller, you know, I'd like Lucinda as my assistant. I think she just liked the look of me. Was that actually you? You referred to everyone as a Miss. Is that that is that that was the form then? Was it? Yes. That everyone was referred to as Miss, like Mister, well, like Mister Hick. Hitchcock, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, Grace was Grace, but it was the older people that were very much, yeah. 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 So you became the assistant Grace Covington, and then you were were commissioned by Beatrix Miller to to do a fashion shoot yourself. Well, Miss Miller used to say to Grace, she's not ready yet, but I'd done lots of side hustles. So mm-hmm. at the weekends, I used to go and sell Vogue at sort of Olympia trade fairs or, you know, and, and one of my side hustles was, well, not side hustles, I got to know a designer, Wendy Dagworthy. And and I used to sort of go to all her sales and we got chatting and she offered me a job. And I remember going into Miss Miller saying, Miss Miller, I've been offered this job as a studio assistant. And, and that was a Friday. And I said, and I don't know quite what to do. And on the Monday, I was working for Grace. So that was really amazing. Mm. And Miss Miller said, don't take the job. And so that was wonderful. So then I worked for Grace for, and I was a terrible assistant. Again, quite chaotic. I loved calling the clothes in, but I hated sending them back. And I was a bit past the parcel, Mike. You know, I loved the sort of inspiration and the Way, I learned everything from Grace because she, Grace was not educated in a formal sense. Mm. So the way she looked at everything, she taught me how to really look at the world yeah. and look at the world in terms of pictures and look at everything. And because somebody like, I don't know, Cezanne or Van Gogh, they didn't mean anything to Grace. So she looked at everything as if she was a child, like as if she was a baby with no history attached, no form. So it was an incredible thing to look at the world through her eyes where so it's totally new and fresh Everything and not, not, not linked to anything. Nothing. It's, yeah. I nothing. And it was an incredible training and to be so close to her. Mm. And I would have done, I did everything, you know, I, I just loved seeing what she saw and how she saw it, but also how she prepared for shoots and the work that went into it. Yeah. And I love that. And I suddenly realized what it entailed to it, build a picture. It would be a good idea at this point, I think, to talk about that because, um, you've got two aspects haven't you've got styling and you've got if you like art direction or basically you're there if you're at a a, a shoot you're there to to be part of the process creatively not just i'm not saying 
telling the photographer what to do, but there are things you'll see, things that are not quite right, like whatever. You're there very much as a creative partner in that process. Yes, yeah, start such a long time before that. And that's what I really learned from Grace, is okay. that you have this germ of an idea, and mm. honestly, it can be leaves on the pavement. Tell us about the very first shoot. So my first shoot was, my first own shoot was when Miss Miller called me in and said, you, you can do a shoot. And I'd done a lot of, a lot of shoots by that time as an assistant. Right. And Miss Miller said, you can go anywhere and yes. you can, I want you to do a beauty shoot. Because by that time I was in the beauty department. Grace had oh, shunted me off. Okay. I mean, I was a terrible okay. assistant. But I, but I had done very well in the beauty department because the beauty editor hated shoots. So I was given a lot of leeway with that. Mm -hmm. So I cut, really cut my teeth a lot with that. But the first shoot I ever did, Miss Miller said, go anywhere. And I rung up Patrick de Marchalier and oh, I yes, worked yes. a lot with him as an assistant. Mm -hmm. And I thought he might take a punt because mm -hmm. he was very, adventurous Patrick and I rung him up and I said this is Lucinda I was Grace's assistant you know you won't remember me I want to do a shoot and he was like baby do what you do of course come over and Miss Miller called me in and she said you're going to do a beauty shoot I don't want any of your stupid fashion don't and none of your hats and it's got to be a beauty shoot and I said fine 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 and I remember going to New York and I remember coming back oh I remember on the way catching the bus the day before I got on the plane I looked down and in the basement, there was this hat, old hat maker. And in the window were all of these hats that had been bleached out by the sun. And they were shades, shades, shades of these colours mm -hmm. going from very pale where they had been bleached out to dark, 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 dark. And I went in and I bargained and I bought the whole bloody lot. And I took them with me to New York and... And I did this shoot and it wasn't a beauty shoot. It was a fashion shoot. And I didn't put one hat on. I put six hats on all in these shades. And I turned all the clothes inside out and back to front. And I remember bringing the Polaroids back with me on the plane thinking, what the hell did I do? I just didn't follow the brief. I did everything that Miss Miller said don't do. I put on hats. I turned the clothes back to front. You can hardly see the face of the girl. Patrick loved it. And I had great fun. And I wanted to do the picture. I realized that I just wanted to do the picture that was in my head. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the brief that I was told. And I remember going into the fashion room and saying to Grace, I've really screwed up. Miss Miller wants a beauty shoot and these are the Polaroids and I've done a fashion shoot and it's got so many hats. And Grace said, I love them. They're wonderful. And I'll come in with you. And she came in with me and she said to Miss Miller, don't get angry with her because they're really lovely pictures. And Miss Miller said, they're great. And I think, uh -huh. I think, I mean, I'm sure she didn't say they're great, like, mm. but they indulge, you know. Yeah. And I think I've, from that day, I thought I'm just going to do the picture that I want to do. I mean, it, it's frustrating if you're my editor because yes, yes. Alex would say to me, can you just leave the clothes alone sometimes? But we'll get onto that. Mm. But I enjoyed it so much, Mike. I just felt so happy being in a studio and fiddling around and making shapes and, creating pictures that were that felt different and yeah and i remember putting jumpers on the legs and putting putting the poor model putting her legs into the armholes and mm. creating shapes yeah. and a mood and a thing i just loved it i loved it and so you you then uh got well entrenched in in that area until i, I think uh, in 1985 you 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 went across because um, I think Sally uh, Brampton uh, was uh, going to be the UK editor of L. That's right. And you you went across um, to work with her. Well, it was a huge, huge hoik for me. Sally had been at Vogue, and I had respected her very much. And and L hadn't started yet in the UK. It was just a French. It was a French weekly magazine mm. by Hachette. Yeah. And they wanted to make it a month, or maybe twice a month magazine in the UK and and I was still an assistant I was doing lots of shoots but I was still an assistant yeah and Sally said do you want to come as fashion director so my a my salary which didn't really by that time I was still living in the squat you know and we were paid very badly at Vogue so that was okay though it, doesn't, it was never about the money but I was living in the squat and Sally said do you want to come as fashion director I mean it was like somebody saying I mean, it was just the most yeah, massive, you know, imagine. it yeah. would have taken me normally 15 years to get into that if I was ever in that position, you know. So 
I said to Miss Miller, I went into Miss Miller because I felt so loyal. And I said, Miss Miller, you know, Sally Bampton's offered me this job. And she said, darling, I've just handed in my resignation. And it made me feel nobody had knew. I mean, obviously, yeah. the higher, higher people. And so it made me feel, gosh, well, that's an end of an era. Yeah. And so that's, that's a sign, you know, that it's all right to go. Mm. You know, I felt very loyal to her, you know, but that was all right. So we did L and yes, it was fantastic. So it was great because Anna Winter came to British Vogue to be editor and she didn't really want to work with any of the photographers that we scooped up a lot of photographers that she didn't want to work with. So it was wonderful. So I was able to continue with Patrick de Marchelli, you know, start working with her Brits, people who had never got a chance to work with, really. So that was a, an amazing opportunity. It was wonderful. So then after you left, Ellie, were, you went back to Vogue, didn't you? Mm. I think it's Liz Tilburis, yes. who's the editor. She she wanted you for your for, for her fashion editor. Yes. So tell yes. me about that. that. That must have been quite exciting for it you. Was, it was wonderful. I mean, I was pregnant at the time with okay. my first child. Well, felt guilty about that. And I think I took two weeks maternity leave. But Liz said, you know, I'd like you to come back. I remember she rung me up and she said, I'd like to have a cup of tea with you. And I went, oh, yeah, Liz, any time. And congratulations. That's so fantastic. She went, no, no, I'd like to have a cup of tea with you. And I went, yeah, <laughs> great. Any time, Liz, you know. And we'd always got on well at Vogue. And she went, no, I'm offering you a job. And I went, oh, crikey. Fant- amazing. Is that a secret code, cup of tea? I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I went back and it was run. And the thing about Elle is we had run it very well. Mm. It was very democratic and everybody got a say. And when I went back to Vogue, it wasn't thus. Liz was a fabulous person and she was a fabulous fashion editor, but it was very discombobulated, the fashion room. There was a fashion director who took quite a lion's share of the budget which was fine because we were used to working, you know, on a budget, but it was very up and down. Nobody, Liz was a real people person and she wanted everyone to be happy, mm-hmm. but she, it wasn't run as a very tight ship, I would say. And by that time, Mike, I'd started working as a consultant to lots of other companies. So I'd started working for Prada and really had, you know, stayed there for about eight or 10 years and mm. had seen this very unknown company grow brilliantly. With probably a be- better expertise at running things. So you were ab- yeah. exposed to that, the reality bit, of how maybe. it could be done. I, yeah. I hadn't thought of that before, but also had run L and the fashion department. Mm. So kind of had a bit more confidence in team building, you know, and people's voices and, you know, how you divvy things up and budgets yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And I also started working for Jill Sander. So I was very luckily working with two very powerful mm. women who had both built up very, very strong companies mm. and with great elegance and expertise and talent. And I just said to Liz, this isn't for me, Liz. And she said, I just want your pictures. She said, so why don't you become freelance, which was unheard of then. Nobody was ever had ever been freelance at Vogue. And she said, just do your pictures. And so that was amazing for me. Mm. So I just did the shoots and didn't have to get involved with the politics and carried on working for Jill Sander and for Prada. And that was wonderful. And then Liz went to America and Alex came in and that's yes. when another change happened. That was in 92, wasn't it? 19, I'm terrible at dates. I... 1992, it says, uh, yeah, I, my notes are telling me here that, it, that, that yeah. she was a new editor in October 1992 yeah. and gave you fashion director position in yeah. 1997, which, which you um, held for 25 years at Vogue. Yeah. But you, I think in all you were there 36 years, weren't you? Yeah, I think that's what yeah, yeah. Actually, while we're on the subject of you being at Vogue, this is a sort of side issue, but it's one that kind of interests me. You are working with some of the most glamorous, beautiful people on a daily basis, probably in the world. So one, getting used to seeing those magnificent faces and figures, it must be a bit discombobulating i would have thought when you go back out into the real world and you're on the tube what's it what's it like it's always struck me as being a very glamorous area because you know you pick up vogue magazine or the others and you see all these wonderful people and it's totally unreal to a certain extent yes and when they're obviously dressed in new fashions for the various you know major events over the course of a year they all look fantastic of course because they're all about six foot tall yes it is isn't it they're like another species totally how do you how does that make you what is it like i think it was very interesting because 
I never felt, and I have never felt, and I didn't certainly didn't then, that I led a vogue life. You know, yeah. I, I didn't lead a... You know, glamour is such an interesting word because actually the thing about working for Vogue is all the women and men who worked there were quite hardworking. And that glamorous life, I don't know what that means. Sure, when you're on a shoot and you've got this extraordinary creature that you've dressed. But I never thought it was glamorous. I remember once thinking, this is glamorous. And I'll, uh, and I'll tell you about that. And it was going to the Grand Prix and it was in Formula One and we were allowed in the pits to photograph and we were staying on a yacht and it was a very well-known race driver. Mm. And the, and I remember thinking for the first and only time, this is what most people think is glamorous because we were on a yacht in Monaco at the Grand Prix with a model, Isabelle, who was a sort of Victoria's Secret, you know, it, it was heightened, but you never felt that was your life. You just happened to be doing a job that had propelled you into this situation. But I used to tell everybody who came into Vogue, everybody who I hired, of which there were hundreds over the years, we aren't Vogue. We're not Vogue. Vogue is a peg that we hang our hat on for a short or long amount of time. And it's about the work ethic and about doing the right thing. And for me, Mike, it was never glamorous. It no. was about storytelling. You know, Alex, we say to me, I think we should do a coat story, do a, you know, whatever. Or actually we would discuss the stories together. But for me, it was never about a glamorous girl wearing a coat. It was about, I'm going to think about this character who can't decide whether she's going to divorce her husband or not. She's reclusive. She lives on an island. We'll go to Sweden. Oh, and by the way, she's wearing a coat. Maybe she's wearing a few coats. But that's how I think of pictures. I never think of pictures of, oh my gosh, let's do a black skirt story. No, you're, me, was, you're, you're thinking stories, aren't you, really? Stories. Storytelling. Stories. Yeah. It was, and so for me, the models, whether they were 58 or 17, could they tell this story? Could they tell the story that's in my head? You know, can the photographer, as I got older and older, I learned to let go a lot more. But it was always about preparing the story. And that's what I love. After the story's finished, I mean, a copy of Vogue has never come home with me. I'm not proud of that. It's just not what interested me. Mm. I was on to the next story. So when you say about glamorous, they're, they're alien species. But you know what? The really good models, and I tended to work with the same models. I love trying out new models. Loved that. I loved new faces, and but they were never. I always loved seeing. They always had to have something behind the eyes, you know, something yeah. Yeah. odd or interesting or a story to tell. Or you know, there were quite a lot of models who were modelling into their forties and now into their fifties who I work with, and they bring so much more to the table. You know, you think about Kate Moss being a super glamorous girl, but she's, she's got this skill. Mm. She's got this skill that she is so happy to be transformed. Yes. I love the transformation, you know, and Kate would talk about herself on the screen, you know, mm. in the latter days of, you know, digital and would go, I like her. I mm. like who she mm. is. Mm. I could do her better. It was never about Kate, Kate Moss. It was always about who am I playing? And actually. Yeah. It is actually very much, you know, when they talk about, um, in cinema, the camera either, either loves you or doesn't. And so you get someone like Ingrid Bergman when she first turned yes. up on set who looked fantastic the camera loved her yes. and there was something about her that was yes. you know you just fell in love with this yes. face yes. and I, I but you know we, we vaguely just now talking about the glamorous side and and you've quite rightly said you know for, for you that wasn't the thing but th there is a, a slightly non-glamorous side i mean i i was funnily enough just the other day just coincidentally i was listening to kirsty young you know yes. the, used to do desert island yes. she, she did this program called young again i know i've listened to it and linda evangelist yes. did, did you hear that interview i did well i i thought wow this you hear these things going on and i have a a friend whose daughter was sort of picked up by a, 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 an agency and she went to Paris and she, she had to leave him because she said it was, there were so many Brutal. horrible yeah. predatory men, a lot yeah. of them very old and fat yeah. and dreadful, assuming that they could. And I, I just said, Oh, that's absolutely terrible. Yeah, you know, terrible. And I, I just <laughs> thought, well, I just wanted to ask you, were you very aware of that? And, and, and well, I think where, and I don't, particularly like this word, but I think it's relevant here, is that we were privileged. I did, you know, maybe 4,000 shoots I've done. Wow. And I've never witnessed any bad behaviour. And I think if I had, but part of that possibly is because we're working with really top, top of our game, mm. you know, and no, actually, Mike, I tell a lie. Right. 
I was on one really bad shoot. Just to go back to your point about the Kirsty Young with Linda Evangelista, mm. what I was disappointed in that interview was they never touched on the talent that Linda had. They talked about her beauty. Yes, that's true. And yeah. I felt so sad yes. that actually Linda, more than any other model I've ever worked with, wanted that picture so badly. She would do anything. I mean, I've wrapped snakes around her neck in Egypt because she wanted that picture to be the best picture. I've blown up taxis in a kind of like a recreating New York in a taxi driver shoot was her, my first cover for Vogue that she was in in Clerkenwell and she brought over all her pictures of her family that I could have then hang, hang in the taxi cab wow. and she remembered to do that what I was really up sad about is that Kirsty didn't say overlooked all of that. overlooked yeah. the skill that's involved yeah that's Linda true. actually true. wasn't the most beautiful person she had a really interesting face mm. and she had a body that made clothes look extraordinary mm. but her movement and her skill and her intelligence in front of a camera and her drive was just unbelievable and they never mentioned that they kept on going about her beauty i mean i was just like this there's so much more to this woman you know yeah, yes um but i went on one shoot and it was quite late in my vogue career and the photographer's very well known and he hasn't actually been called out yet and he was appalling and he was so rude to everybody, not to me, but to the model and to the hairdresser. And I just said, we're, go we're wrapping this up. And he looked at me, he went, well, we haven't got the pictures. I said, it's fine. And I came back. Good for you. Yeah, I said, it's fine. It's fine. And I stopped the shoot. And luckily, the model was very robust. And I apologized to her and I said, I'm so sorry. She said, it's fine. Lucinda, I've known him for years and, and I can't speak about it. I mm, tried no, to. No, no. And, and it was a bit shut down. He's very old now, but I think I'm very sad about that because, mm. yeah. You know, the whole world has moved forward now and, and these things have been called out and yeah. people are in prison, you know, in the film world and so yeah. forth, quite rightly so. Yeah, and, quite and, rightly and, so. And um, hopefully it's not like that anymore and that young models are treated fairly and, and not exploited. Obviously, you know, you, you became very well known. Your work was everywhere. You were, as you say, you, you were advising other companies or connected with them. And you, you also were part of the closing ceremony at the London Olympics where you start you were doing the styling for again model supermodels uh, nine of them I think showcasing British design Burberry Vivian Westwood Alexander McQueen and so forth and then in in 2017 after a long wonderful run it all suddenly and abruptly ended because you the new editor um, Edward Anifal decided that you should leave did you have any inkling? No, I didn't. Ooh. But it was interesting because when it was announced that he was going to be editor, I mean, it was it was a funny process because Alex had asked me to meet her at her hotel around the corner from Vogue a few months beforehand. And she texted me. She said, I want to meet you and tell you something. And Mike, I thought she was going to say something like, I've got cancer or... so. Mm. I was so worried. Um, and she texted me that morning and we met for a cup of coffee and mm. I, and I was going to see her obviously later on that day, you know, yeah. all day. And she said, I want you to be the first to know I'm going to resign from Vogue. And I was so relieved, Mike, that <laughs> she wasn't ill. That was fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. her resignation from Vogue was fine. And she said, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, I think she's probably one of the few people, if possibly the only, who's actually ever resigned, you know, of her own volition in that, really? in that, um, right. as an editor, you know, because, it's a top, you know, top job. Yes. But anyway, so it was a bit of a long, drawn out process while they looked for somebody. And I wasn't worried, but I didn't think, I wasn't, I, I thought whoever they bring in is absolutely entitled to change. So I did think it could come to an end. I was keeping an open mind. But honestly, Mike, I thought I've had the most incredible career. You know, I, I wasn't worried about it. I was just curious, you know, about who would follow Alex. And funnily enough, when I, when Edward was announced, I'd always got on perfectly well with him. I had never worked for him or with him, but mm. we'd always been very pleasant with each other. And actually, by that time, I'd worked at Marnie for many years, and he'd always been very supportive of Marnie. And anyway, he, when it was announced, he actually called me on the phone and said, you know, I'm so honoured to be to be announced that I'm going to be editor, and we're going to do a beautiful magazine together. So actually, I felt, oh, that's nice. Oh. You know, he's so counting you felt me in. fairly secure. I would well, have thought someone I just said that was quite you. surprised, actually, because yeah. I, I thought, oh, lovely. Anyway, it was not to be. And I wasn't shocked, mm. I don't think, because I did really think that everybody is entitled to change. And I'd seen changes over the years. And I know that, you know, when a new editor comes in, I'd, you know, I'd seen that they want to 
make their own magazine. And that is perfectly, you know, and a- Alex had run a, a brilliant magazine for 25 years and, you know, change was coming. And I think, you know, all power to that. So I wasn't, what more upset me? Well, actually, the only thing that upset me was that I did an interview a couple of days later. And that's something I did regret. Oh, right. Yes. There was a, a slight con- controversial interview I, yes. I, I th- I've read about. That, and um, that's actually what yeah. really upset me. And that yeah. overshadowed everything. Yeah. It, 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 that took me, it sounds such a small beans and in the way the world is at the moment. Mm. But I thought I've worked very hard and for very long and done the best job that I could and I'd just blown it. Not by being let go at Vogue. That was fine. I think yeah. that was perfectly manageable for me. But that I Did you have to go very swiftly once? No, 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 they wanted me no, because Alex wasn't going swiftly. Oh, I see. And okay. they wanted me to carry on. Just carry on. Well, they wanted me to carry on to do the shoots that I had committed mm. to do. And I think they'd set a date for Edward to come in. So I carried on. And I it was more actually that I was worried about my team because they thought if they can let go of Lucinda. Oh, of course, then, yes. And and I said to all of them, you're not in his eye line. I'm in his eye line. Honestly, don't panic. Don't worry. Don't, you know. And I think that's what I was more concerned with is that everybody should. But I think for Alex, and she only recently told me this, that she said when he fired or when he let go of you, I mean, I think it was not particularly elegant because he wasn't in the job yet. You were told by someone else, presumably. I was told by him well, that by he him. actually wasn't in the job yet and there was nobody from HR and it wasn't done in the oh, most, you know, elegant way, but not, you know, that often can't be, hmm. you know, I think now it's different times and things would be handled differently. Yeah. But I didn't, that didn't even occur to me. But I think Alex felt very, very upset about that hmm. and very protective. But I was fine, actually. Weirdly, I was absolutely fine. So did you find once leaving, you know, it sort of faded fairly quickly or did you have kind of pangs of loss? No, it's so interesting, Mike. And I don't know whether it's a something about me or whether it's about our time that we live in, possibly a mixture. I never look back, you know, even though I stayed with things for a very long time, Mm. I don't feel defined by them. You know, we've lived in this house for 35 years or whatever. I was in the same job for 37 years. But if it all went, the job went, and if we had to move out of tomorrow, I I think I don't look back at things. It's why I never took my work home with me. Mm. You know, I've never kept any of my tear sheets or anything. I think I've kept one because it had my dog on the cover, um, which was unexpected. But I'm always looking forward. It's a really odd thing. I And that's why when you mention dates, I'm always quite surprised because I can never remember any dates when I was doing anything. But I'm always on to the next thing. You've just talked about your house that you've been at for 30 years. And that when I when I read that, and I've actually been to your house with Georgina a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. And so I want to talk about it in a, in a moment. But what, what, what I found interesting is that looking back in your early life, there you were moving every 18 months. And and you've been in the same place for thirty years. So I thought to myself, you you wanted to now having seen your house, and I mean I should leave it to you to describe. But my instant um, view of it was that every every room was a different experience, mainly brought about by color, because every room I think was a, a different color, at least as I recall it, but with masses of pattern, texture, color, furniture, objects. Um, so it, it's so far from minimalism that you, you, you <laughs> could possibly be. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm a, I'm a, ma- a maximalist with a minimalist trying to get out. Yes. Whenever I, when I do move, I start off thinking, Oh, I think I'll keep it like this. And looking around me here in Dorset, you know, it's just crowded with stuff. And I can't help it. I think we're I, all kind of magpies. That's magpies. what it is. Yeah. I know. Um, anyway, t- so talk about your love of interiors because that's <clears throat> really, that's your other, the other side. I mean, you, you create your world, don't you, around yes. you that makes yes. you feel something. So yes, but oddly, and I don't know if you're the same, Mike, in Dorset and you're looking around at your stuff. My yeah. husband calls it stuff is. And it's a bit like jobs, but not like friendships or family is the looking back thing. It, weirdly, I love stuff, but I'm not materialistic. It's very odd. Yeah, I mean, I'm like that too. Yeah, it's funny. I, it's I, really funny. Yeah. If something breaks, I'm actually George and Jimmy came to stay. And the last time Jimmy was here, I think he broke three things. <laughs> and actually one was quite a big lamp. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I, I don't. And it's a bit, 
I loved, and it goes back to Vogue. I loved working at Vogue. I loved the experience, mm. but I'm not defined by, you know, I never felt walking into a room. Oh, I'm the fashion director of Vogue. I sometimes mm. thought pinch me, you know, God, aren't I lucky? But never thought I am, you know, same with stuff in the houses. I don't need things to define me or look smart or cool or. But there is, a, I mean, there is an interesting thing about you. I mean, I know you've also got a house in France in Toulouse. Yeah. Uh, um, which, which you. Uh, described in another interview, which sounded lovely. I love the idea that everyone brings a hat and leaves it hanging up yeah. in that house, which is such a nice idea. Yeah. But, you, but the thing is, apparently you've said that um, you don't actually like staying at other people's houses, really. No. What is that? Well, I was trying to figure it out this weekend because we went to stay with some friends in Norfolk. Highly unusual. Probably mm. for, I was trying to work it out, Mike, on the long car journey back in the mini. What is it? Is it a control thing? But I'm not a control freak. I love being told what to do. I was thinking, I like to, I don't know whether it's being Sagittarius. I like feeling free. I like mm. feeling free. And I was once told, I once asked, I had some therapy ages ago. And I said to my therapist, who was wonderful, a gay woman who lived in Hove, Alex said, you've got the whole of Harley Street to go to. Why are you? Why have you found somebody in Hove? She was terrific. And I remember saying to Trish, Trish, do you think I'm a workaholic? And she went, I know you're not a workaholic, but you've got the highest sense of responsibility of anybody I've ever met. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm. So I always want to do a good job for somebody, for somebody, you know, whether it was for Alex or for Liz or Sally or my bosses at Marnie or Prada or, you know, wherever, wherever. Mm. But I like being free. You know, mm. I do like being free. So Going to, sorry, that was a long segment. No, no, going good. to stay with other people. I love having people to stay and I know that it, it's really easy for me, but I don't assume that it's easy for other people. Yeah. So I always feel that I'm putting them in a tricky situation. I also just don't like lying in bed thinking, should I go down for breakfast or not? Is anybody? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not very good at that. And also I love seeing friends and I love having them stay over long periods so that we can go in deep. Yeah. Um, there are a few people I do stay with, but I love having people here. I, d yeah. I don't know what it's about, Mike. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. wish I knew. Tell me about collagery. My, my partner, who's half my age and American and is fabulous and everything that I'm not and real mega business brain. Yeah. We both of us worked across each other from at Vogue for five years. Right. And we saw the landscape, horrible word, landscape shifting. Yeah. At Vogue. Everybody was much more about digital, about putting advertising in digital. And I, that didn't so much bother me or impact me, but I could see it resonated with Serena a lot. Anyway, when we left Vogue, we were so lucky at Vogue. Everything came to us, you know, models, photographers, ideas, new designers, discovery brands, everything. We just had to be on receive mode and everything would come in. And Serena and I were having a cup of coffee. And we were like, where do we get that information from now? Like, where would we go? And we both looked at each other and we realized there is no one place that we would go. We'd have to do a patchwork. She's half my age. I'm very different style for me. And we were like, if you need this and I need this, we've got started. And we started our website, Collagery. And we wanted right from the get-go to make it the most unanxiety inducing the most beautiful storytelling magazine shopping online experience that you could have. So we spent a year designing it, another year putting it together. And we started it and it's wonderful, fabulous company. We now employ 17 people, 18, 19 next week. Are they all um, over here or are they over part, here, part in? Over here. And it's, it's a lot to do with tech, which is something that was completely yeah, alien ch to changed me. everybody. Oh yeah. I was the last person to get a computer at Vogue until I felt so out of touch. It was embarrassing. <laughs> and now we talk tech and we talk a different language. And, and I think two years ago, I thought, have I really signed up to do something which I'm pretty frightened by. And now I just think all these kids are doing it in the office and I'm talking to brands and I'm pitching. I'm pitching ideas, pitching stuff. And it's, you know, I'm designing product because brands come to us and go, we're not too sure what to do. What can we do? And I go, you know what? This is what we could do with you. And I love it, Mike. You're also and taking after your father in that respect. I think both my pitching. mother and my father. Yeah, but yeah. I did think about that. And I said that to my father the other day, who's 99. I said, Daddy, I think you taught me how to pitch <laughs> you, or you gave me the enthusiasm about, because that's all life is. It's like, whether you're in love or whatever, you're like, come along and take the journey with me. Yeah, you know, take yeah, the ride. Yeah. You know, it might be as 
circuitous route and it might not be all plain sailing, but you've got to take the ride with me. And I think that's kind of probably everybody's I like that quote. You've got to take the ride with me. I'm going to use that. (laughs) Well, we're coming to the end now. Put yourself now, if you can, as a, as a young designer, sort of, you know, coming out of art school, university, whatever, wanting to get into your world and sort of follow your footsteps. What, what advice would you give them? Well, practical advice. Most wonderful assistants I've ever had. I've seen them as interns. So if you get a chance to intern, hmm. you know, be the last to leave, be the first to get there. It's your time to shine. It's not just you having a look around at whether that's an area you want to be involved with. But it's also a time for you to make connections, you know, that you take the opportunity, seize the day, seize the day of saying to somebody, can I have five minutes to talk to you? Any of the interns, uh, you know, wherever I've worked have said, can I have five minutes with you? And they pick their moment to say it. One always assume that the person who's involved in the job that you're interested in loves their job and wants to talk about it. So we'll be happy to talk about it to you. So seize the day, carpe diem, seize the day. Seize the day. That's very good advice. (laughs) Seize the day. And also in my day, you know, I was lucky with that phone, first phone call to Angela Simon, but DM people, you know, if you send out 20 DMs, maybe somebody will reply. I get DMs all the time. I reply to every single one. Right. Sorry, what is a DM? A a direct message. Direct message. Okay. We didn't have that in our day. I think what's really great now is that you can send somebody an email, a message, Hmm. and the chances are they might get it. In my day, you had to put, you know, pen to parchment and you were lucky if somebody opened the envelope. I mean, that was one thing I did change at Vogue is that we replied to everything and made sure that everybody had an interview and it wasn't just the nephew of the chairman and the thing. You know, that yes. was something I was proud of. No, no nepotism. Yeah. yeah. We really changed that and everybody got a look in. But I think carpe diem and, mm. and that you've got this four weeks as an intern and you've got to make a mark. And, you know, it's not necessarily kind of glitzy that I'm fabulous make a mark, but just mm. like connectivity. Yeah. Get an email. Yeah. Get a connection. Don't leave the building without an email. (laughs) And another thing that I always really felt very peaceful with Mm -hmm. is thinking, I don't have to be the best, but I'm not the worst. I sit somewhere in the middle and that's fine. Well, thank you very much. Linda Chambers, thank you for sharing your RDI insights. It's really delightful. Thank you very much. Many thanks, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) 